When in childhood or in adolescence we're first introduced to poetry, it's often presented to us as a way of expressing our deepest desires or emotions, or perhaps as a bucolic escape from everyday life. But poetry can be much more than this. It can be a way of exploring the capabilities of language itself, of testing its plasticity. Our guest this week is Christian Book, a recipient of the prestigious Griffin Prize for Poetry, and someone who's done that very rare thing of writing a poetry book that went on to be a bestseller. By almost any metric, he is one of the world's most successful poets. But what's really exciting about him is that he is turning science into poetry and poetry into science. And I don't just mean that figuratively. He is literally writing a poem, encoding a poem into the DNA of a bacterium. He also brings a very scientific approach to his process of composition. There is a staggering amount of trial and error and computational research that goes into meeting the very rigorous constraints that he sets himself in his writing. He's using poetry to run empirical experiments with words. By employing constraints, he's probing the limits of language. And also, for example, by only using the letter A to write certain poems, he's uncovering the hidden character of that vowel. Now, you might say, well, that's all well and good, but I'll stick with the romantics. This all sounds a bit cold and soulless. But his poems are full of warmth and wit and life. And I really enjoy his conversation because all of that comes across from him as well. So without further ado, I'm James Robinson, and there are many ways of writing verses. This is Multiverses. Get it? Christian Book, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's a great pleasure, James, to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, address your listeners. I'm grateful to be here. So one can think of language itself as a series of constraints. There's particular ways in which we can arrange symbols to make words, uh, roughly speaking, spelling. Um, and then, of course, there's particular ways that you could arrange words to make uh, valid sentences and phrases, um, grammar and syntax. It seems that poetry has a long tradition of adding further constraints on top of this. Um, perhaps you can give us a sort of a, a mini history of this and, and your thoughts as to why that is. Well, uh, the uh, use of constraints in poetry, of course, is probably as old as poetry itself. Um, I, I suppose that uh, historically we understand that uh, the need uh, for constraints in the confabulation of poetry depends upon the oral transmission, transmission of messages uh, using techniques for easily memorizing uh, uh, cultural uh, information. So being able to uh, phrase language in a manner which makes it memorable, uh, perhaps euphonic or musical, rhythmical and metrical, uh, exploits those uh, aspects of our own cognition in music that make it possible for us to uh, remember lyrics to songs, for example, and, and long uh, passages of theatrical uh, expression. Uh, so I, I, th I think that the roots of constraint in poetry have a lot to do with uh, mnemonic aids for uh, uh, speaking in public uh, orally in an era that precedes uh, literacy and writing. Uh, 
in this respect, poetry is very closely aligned uh, with music. Uh, I would say that at least uh, throughout much of the classical period leading up to the modern era, music and poetry have generally been in lockstep competing for uh, uh, cultural dominance. And I would suggest that now music has completely uh, predominated over poetry as a cultural phenomenon. But certainly uh, each one of those um, uh, genres of the arts, uh, I think, vied for queen of the arts. And uh, just as there are constraints, of course, in the confabulation of music to uh, produce uh, harmony and concordances and melodies, uh, I think there's a similar set of uh, underpinning structures that uh, have characterized uh, poetry for much of its history. Okay, interesting. So, so I, I guess you'd say the the way that poetry uses rhythm and and, and possibly music as as well are both about. Uh, Essentially, a mnemonic age to to make it catchy, as it were, and uh, ensure that the it, it lives on within the reader or listener. Um, well, I, I assume that there is, of course, uh, some mnemonic component to uh, uh, the structural uh, features of poetry. But don't forget, of course, that poetry has a persuasive function. Uh, it constitutes a kind of rhetorical strategy for. Uh, uh, convincing people to uh, follow you, I don't know, uh, join your civilization, uh, go into battle, uh, uh, join your religion. All, all of these uh, features of poetry too uh, constitute part of its enchantment, uh, a way of uh, mesmerizing masses of people in order to um, uh, compel them, uh, at least to remain, maintain their engagement, to continue to entertain them and uh, ensure their, uh, I don't know, capture of attention. These are important features of the structural underpinnings of poetry as well. Uh, it's not just simply, I think, you know, an aid to uh, the orator, but provides right. uh, pleasure to the audience as well. Yeah. I, it, it strikes me that, you know, among the classical arts of oration, both memory techniques and rhetoric were, um, you know, core. And I, and I guess poetry is sort of distilling those and, and saying, yeah, it must be persuasive, emotive, memorable and all of those features are things which can, rhythm and other kind of constraints um you know rhyming obviously uh can can aid with um the other thing it recalls just your analogy with with music is is that lovely line from louis zukowski where he he describes poetry as an integral with the the lower limit being speech and the upper limit being music um, yeah i think that's a, a great definition of poetry um I might suggest that all definitions of poetry are probably pretty good, but uh, I, I like this idea that there's a kind of sliding scale that poetry may occupy on this continuum between uh, speech and music. Uh, I think that's a very that's a really wonderful way of uh, characterizing poetry as something that constitutes a slider uh, on this you know a disparity, the spectrum that extends from uh, speech to music or from prose to melody. Yeah, I, I really love that definition too. That there's one thing I feel that. There's a dimension though that it that it also lacks, which is is maybe one of the characterizing dimensions or the characterizing dimension of your work, which is this sort of non-rhythmic or you know formal constraints, which aren't to do with the pattern of sound so much, but with the pattern of symbols, I suppose. Uh, well, certainly in my own work, there's uh, a, a long-term uh, infatuation with the use of constraints as a, as a guiding principle for creativity. Um, I, I'm certainly uh, well-versed in prosody and uh, do my best to actually exploit 
lots of uh, techniques that make uh, the work that I compose euphonic and pleasing to hear, uh, persuasive uh, and pleasurable uh, for all of its you know, auditory characteristics and uh, perhaps even syntactical or grammatical characteristics. Um, but of course, there are other kinds of expressions of virtuosity that a person might exploit uh, in a poem. Uh, including some, you know, difficult Herculean constraints that actually uh, really delimit uh, your capacity to express yourself. All constraints are designed, I think, to uh, discipline uh, a speaker uh, in order to um, extract from uh, language uh, what appears to be a relatively unlabored utterance, but nevertheless uh, conforms to a, a a wide variety of really difficult um, parameters to fill. fill. Um, so, so, yeah. So in this, in this respect, there's, there's a kind of uh, skill testing aptitude in poetry, uh, a kind of athleticism or virtuosity that we also, uh, you know, have to take into account during the oral transmission of work, especially in certain classes of poetry that are spontaneous and improvised, uh, flighting or rap battles, for example, flighting in the medieval era, rap battles in the modern era. Uh, which require, you know, an improv, uh, improvisational um, uh, performative dimension. And uh, the more uh, qualified your uh, response is, the more disciplined it is, uh, the more constrained it is, generally the more impressive it is, especially when created on the fly. So uh, uh, th- there's, there's lots of ways to demonstrate virtuosity and aptitude with the language and poetry. And in, in many respects, poetry... Uh, attempts to showcase the potential of language when subjected to uh, a whole variety of, I don't know, limit cases of uh, or uh, strength tests, right? You know, we're trying to test language to a certain point of failure. Um, uh, so the, 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 at least in the history of poetry, there's a kind of athletic dimension to, to many of these feats. Uh, again, something that I, I think poets probably ignore at their peril that, you know, ignore these aspects of the tradition. Um, uh, the, there's a reason that uh, poetry has on the, prevailed in the past, and among them are, are these expressions of virtuosity. Uh, I think that um, the the key feature of uh, poetry that you know would be less easy to acknowledge is that it, it doesn't tend to convey information. <laughs> that its job is not so much to convey information, even though it is made of things that are typically used to convey information. Poetry uh, seems to suppress perhaps that component feature of language, the social contract to communicate, and instead emphasizes uh, or privileges more other aspects of the language that have gone under acknowledged. And certainly these formal uh, principles are features of communication that uh, get uh, suppressed. They're considered noise, I think, or uh, intrusions, obnoxiousness, you know, kind of a... um, uh, peripheral uh, features of language that would otherwise get in the way of meaningful uh, expression. Yeah, there's some really nice um, themes in there. I, uh, one thing for me is this: this athleticism brings to mind Bernard Suits, the philosopher who came up with, who, who responded to Wittgenstein's sort of challenge that you can't define a game, you can't give an analytic de- definition rather of games. You can only talk about family resemblance and and suit said well i just don't think that's the case you know i think game playing is where you are voluntarily putting obstacles in your way uh, so it's the let me just read the kind of classic definition the voluntary attempt to overcome 
unnecessary obstacles. And that's a great definition of a, of a game, but it's only one definition of one kind of game. Uh, I mean, I can understand Wittgenstein's anxiety about that. Yes. Um, uh, and certainly there's a, a, a game playing dimension to poetry. Uh, now, there's certain classes of poets who would deny that. Uh, I'm not going to impugn the merits of their uh, misgivings, but I will note that um, I've certainly thought a lot about the uh, ludic character of poetry, mm. a way of playing a game with language that uh, poetry is a kind of language game in, in the manner described by Wittgenstein. Mm. Uh, I take uh, uh, some pleasure in noting uh, that my favorite um, definitions of games are by Roger Carlois. Uh, who studied games all around the world and tried to classify them, uh, you know, anthropologically. Uh, because, of course, game playing is a universal feature of human culture, no matter what culture you're from. And uh, he discovered that there are four ways to play. And I like, I like this very much because these have something to do with the nature of relationship to um, uh, self-consciousness and um, self-expressiveness. Um, I would say that... Uh, if you're a poet, you you pick an attitude uh, somehow. You 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 are uh, adopting an attitude in relationship to self consciousness and self expressiveness. Uh, I think if you if you are willing to uh, say what does it mean to be a writer, and if it, what it means to be a writer is um, uh, having something mean, mean having something to say, wanting to say something, the, the the willfulness to want to say something. I've got something I want to say, and then saying it. Right. That that's the kind of, you know, the basic features of what it means to be a writer is that you you uh, have you mean to say something and you seem to say something right in the course of writing that you do these two things. Uh, if that's the minimum effort required to understand writing, then there's uh, a set of attitudes you can occupy about uh, self-consciousness, your, your meaning to say something and your self-expressiveness, your seeming to say something. And um, in the case of, um, uh, say, most uh, expressive poetry, lyrical poetry, that uh, amounts to kind of emotion recollected in tranquility, a meditative, cognitive experience, I, I think these two values are positive. One is self-expressive and one is self-conscious, right? So if you're self-conscious and self-expressive, you're playing a kind of game uh, in which those values are lauded. And those kinds of games look like uh, games of mimicry in which you occupy a personality or, or you know, you, you, you uh, occupy a position of sincerity or authenticity about yourself and you're attempting to st speak your mind. Um, those kinds of games, of course, uh, characterize uh, 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 acting and pageantry, the, the theatrics of the self, all of the things that we, we associate with uh, self-expression and self-consciousness in, in the course of, of laying claims to winning the game by being the most sincere, the most authentic, uh, the, the best version of ourselves, right? In the, in the course of, of, of mm. playing pretend, or like let's pretend. But of course you can, you can imagine forms of poetry that don't do that, that uh, might, for example, be self-expressive, but not self-conscious. And that would be more like Wordsworth's version of emotion um, as a spontaneous outburst of feeling rather than emotion recollected in tranquility. And that rhapsodic experience of writing uh, is uh, characterized by its delirium, right? You're no longer self-conscious, but you're being self-expressive. You don't you don't mean to say something, but you still seem to say something, right? You know, you 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 do things inadvertently, and this would characterize the automatic writing of the surrealist tradition, or perhaps the beatnik tradition of first thought, best thought, the spontaneous forms of expression that we see in the history of poetry. 
Uh, these are all the inadvertent, unintentional forms of confessionalism. Uh, so on the one hand, you could have a kind of self-conscious confessionalism that we see most poetry occupying, but you could have also an unselfconscious kind of confessionalism that is characteristic of people who speak in their sleep or, you know, uh, you know, right from the position of their dreams, all the, all the surreal, rhapsodic, delirious forms of expression, Walt Whit- Whitman-like poetry that we get in the history of literature. And those games are not defined by the quality of their sincerity or authenticity. We evaluate them by the quality of their delirium, their uh, rhapsodic character, the pleasure that they give us from inducing us a sense of vertigo, right? And those are games of vertigo. Now, you, of course, play those games too, right? You know, swinging on the swing set, I don't know, riding a roller coaster, getting drunk. I mean, all of those kinds of games are, are fun to play too. But how you know you've won is different, right? right? It's the quality mm-hmm. of the vertigo that you admire, not the quality of the sincerity that you admire. And, uh, but th- those two models, both of them are at least self-expressive. And I think they characterize most of what constitutes passes for the romantic tradition of poetry. Mm-hmm. Now, the game that you've just described, uh, you know, the rejoinder from an analytical philosopher uh, to Wittgenstein, um, those, those kinds of games are the ones we typically associate with the overcoming of an obstacle. Uh, uh, and those kinds of games, of course, are not typically self-expressive, but they are self-conscious. Um, you know, the, if you have to overcome some sort of constraint or rule, or you're in a kind of agonistic relationship with uh, an opponent, um, then then you're in, a, in the milieu of virtuosity and athleticism and um, uh, prowess. Those are games of prowess, right? Uh, mm. all, all of which demonstrate skill. And, and test your talent, your, your uh, capacity to overcome some uh, constraint upon your, your uh, aptitudes. And those forms of poetry are characterized, I think, by the long tradition of constraint, f- constrained forms, you know, having to write it in meter or rhyme, um, you know, uh, conforming to some very Herculean set of rules, whatever they might be. Uh, the games like uh, 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 chess or even football, all of those kinds of agonistic games uh, in which you have to overcome an obstacle or an opponent characterize the same kind of relationship you have to your materials when you're trying to overcome a constraint. But of course, the constraint doesn't give you much freedom to be self-expressive, but it does give you a lot of um, opportunity to be self-conscious. You have to be quite willful in those games. Mm-hmm. You just can't say anything you want, right? You can. You have to figure out how to adjust your, what you want to say to what you can say, right? And that's totally different. And how do I know I've won? Well, uh, you know, I demonstrate it through the transcendence of the rules. I, I beat the game, you know, by overcoming the obstacle or, you know, uh, succeeding despite uh, the limitations that have been imposed upon me. To me, that's the typical kind of game that people have in mind when they think of games. Uh, and those are pretty common. Uh, but I've given you, as I said, three games now that that you know that are anthropologically important. You know, games of mimicry, uh, games of delirium, and games of prowess. Um, and I guess the last category, which would fill out this triumvirate of the relationship between uh, this quadrivium, excuse me, of this relationship between <laughs> self-consciousness and self-expression, uh, is uh, games of chance. And those are games in which uh, you're neither self-expressive nor self-conscious. Right? So you you actually delegate the writing task to forces beyond your control completely. You roll dice, you pull words out of the hat at random. Uh, you, might, you might delegate the task to a computer, it writes on your behalf. Um, so, so they're completely unselfconscious and completely unexpressive. Um, and it's the hardest kind of poetry for most poets to appreciate. 
um, because it, it doesn't seem to abide by many of the um, standards we come to associate with effective poetry. And yet it too is a, a game uh, uh, with its own uh, standards for winning um, because there even we, we can write great poetry and we understand we've won if the results are oracular, spooky, right? If they feel uh, uncanny. And mm. uh, poets sometimes play these games in order to validate their blessedness, right? You know, they want to be sure they've been fated to be a poet uh, in, you know, the universe is, is conspiring in their favor, right? So occasionally poets will uh, use lottery methods or roll dice or, or use some sort of random means of writing poetry out of curiosity to see how, what fate will tell them about their talent. And uh, that's, that's the pleasure derived from that is equivalent to pulling a, you know, the lever on a slot machine and getting three cherries, right? It, it's the, the game that gamblers play in the hope that they might uh, read uh, in these tea leaves some oracular or uncanny comment about their worthiness. And that's a different set of parameters by which people win a game. But those are all the four ways in which you can combine self-consciousness and self-expressiveness. And I would say that they amount to the four ways you can be a poet, the four ways you can be a writer. And you can't play more than one game at once, right? You know, you could, you could become good at all of them, I suppose, and you can you know, practice all of them. But I think disputes among poets tend to arise as a side effect of one person playing one kind of game and dismissing the rules or parameters for winning in some other game that they don't value. So if I'm, uh, if I'm a, a person who likes playing the pageantry of, of the game of mimicry, you know, the self-conscious forms of self-expression, and I look at these people over here who are rolling dice, uh, I might dismiss them as crazy and dislike their work and probably not fund it, right? I'll probably hamper their capacity to succeed at it. Um, and uh, there is, I suppose, some, you know, controversies that arise as a side effect of people disagreeing about what constitutes a legitimate game in poetry and how to recognize when a person's won. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really um, illuminating way of thinking about things, this um, quadrant, I guess, between self-expressiveness and self-consciousness. Um, I've heard you talk as well in terms of Keats's egotistical sublime as, as, as one corner of that versus the negative capability that he describes as, as another and kind of tracing sure. on the ones. Yeah. Sure. They, uh, certainly uh, all self-expressive games, the um, uh, games of mimicry, games of uh, vertigo, uh, uh, they're expressive and they tend, I think, to fall into the Wordsworthian camp of the egotistical sublime, um, uh, the, the, the romantic tradition which values the transcendence of the subject speaking. And all the poetry has to be completely aligned uh, with the validity of that self. Um, but the other two categories I've described, those um, uh, games of prowess or games of chance, uh, uh, they um, are, I think, more closely aligned with romantic uh, features of negative capability described by Keats, John Keats. And uh, they, are, that's, they constitute the suppression of the self. They're not forms of self-expression. They, they suppress the expression of the self so that the self can become uh, amenable to forces beyond itself. Uh, to discover uh, potentials that are not perfectly aligned with the self. And we associate those uh, features with, I, I think, all of the models of empathic artistry in which somebody can become, um, any, like an actor can become somebody else, I suppose, through method acting, or um, a, an artist is suddenly freed from the necessity to account for themselves, but can explore other potentials of artistic um, um, 
material. And uh, there is something, I think, in the history of the egotistical sublime that greets negative capability with much suspicion and uh, does its best to hamper uh, the validities of those uh, forms of experimentation that we see uh, characterized in those other two kinds of games. One, ones that are, um, uh, I suppose, deprivilege uh, the, the, the validity of the self for other, other values that are, that are just simply outside that, that one uh, set of concerns. Um, and while all poets, I think, do become, you know, they become poets in part because the romantics at heart, I think I, I've never met a poet who became a poet for any other reason other than they were fundamentally a romantic at heart. I think that there are, you know, weapons that you pick up, right? You know, you, you pick up swords, you pick up icosahedrons, I don't know, you pick up a weapon and uh, you align yourself with play of one sort or another. And I think, I think, you know, lots of poets, uh, begin uh, with a wordsworthy understanding of their of their craft and others uh, perhaps uh, migrate to a, a more Keatsian understanding of their craft. Uh, now there's nothing wrong with either of these aptitudes in my opinion and I have you know no um, uh, prejudicial uh, uh, um, biases about one or the other. I think that they're perfectly valid. It's just that my own proclivities incline me to um, uh, Keats. I've, I've, I find that more productive for me personally, but I have encountered lots of uh, criticism from you know other camps, and uh, at times it can be quite hostile. Like it's you know, very unpleasant to be you know, <laughs> to be subject to um, you know disapprobation because of your uh, interests. I suppose. I, one thing is that strikes me as well is that presumably in the Wordsworthian camp, one starts to encounter constraints, but they are not constraints in terms of being obstacles, but they are, you know, crutches which, like you commented earlier, help with the power of the poem, help with the uh, expressing the things they want to express. And it's at some point maybe people decide, actually, let's tighten these and tighten these and see, turn them from being crutches into obstacles and <laughs> maybe there's a kind of maybe that's one of the ways that people can cross well, over and see if, if, if there's if there's something to be uh uh said uh you know uh, with misgiving about uh the wordsworthian models of uh, poetic expression it's that they predominate uh in uh, most of certainly north american creative writing programs and uh it's certainly a cliche uh, in those programs to say that uh, the job of the writer is to find their own voice, right? The jobs of writers to find their own voice, to uh, be able to speak uniquely in their own um, idiom. And we hope that as teachers, we train students to do so. However, uh, my experience, uh, I think that uh, this um, set of principles have become so codified that uh, what ends up happening is that students find their voices homogenized. They all begin to speak alike. They, they adopt very similar um, um, attitudes, um, stylistic quirks uh, that are features of cultivating uh, self-conscious self-expression. And um, uh, the irony is that in the effort to find your own voice, you end up sounding like a lot of other people that your, your own uniqueness does not really uh, stand out against the backdrop of everybody else's conformity to these norms. Um, and it's just, it's just because uh, it, it, we've codified uh, uh, how to do this form of poetry very well. 
Um, and uh, uh, it, I, th I think we've forgotten the degree to which we're supposed to actually help uh, students transform what would otherwise be regarded as a shortcoming in their uh, self-expression into something that would be a strength, you know, some, something that becomes idiosyncratic. Uh, there's not a great deal of respect, I think, for idiosyncrasies in poetry. There's still a lot of suspicion, you know. Um, uh, it, it, the people are, I think, more relieved when they recognize uh, the work as conforming to um, expectations about how to write a perfectly adequate or ordinary poem. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to touch on one more kind of way of thinking about this division, and then I think we should make it a bit less abstract and give give some examples, because um, mm. the examples themselves are really joyous. Uh, so you mentioned how sort of within the Keatsian camp, as it were, of um, the negative capability, these obstacles can can not only showcase the poet's virtuosity, but but push the limits of of, of language. And the distinction that I'm thinking of is poetry as thought experiments versus empirical experiments. And on the one hand, you're putting yourselves in the mind of another person. And on the other, you're you're kind of using poems as like particle colliders, trying to figure out what is the structure of this, this thing that we have. It's almost like a, a Platonist mathematician trying to work out um, what can we do with these, these things. Um, is that a way that you find useful to think about your craft? Well, when I was a young man, uh, as an undergraduate, uh, uh, taking courses on writing and uh, uh, teaching myself uh, how to become a poet, um, I uh, was publishing lyrical poetry. I was respectable at it and could get it published. But I knew at the time that I was unlikely to uh, uh, excel at, uh, become a great poet. I was very worried that I was uh, actually going to become a mediocrity. And uh, all evidence seemed to point in this direction. Uh, and by the time I graduated and entered graduate school, I was, I was very concerned about uh, my capacity to distinguish myself. And it was in graduate school, I, I, friends introduced me to the secret tradition of literature that didn't get taught to me, a whole avant-garde experimental uh, history of the arts. And I was very upset that I had received only half of my education that I had been you know, immersed in the history of literature uh, through a wide variety of traditions across uh, uh, my language and, and others. And yet at no time did anybody bother uh, to teach me this other secret tradition of um, lunatic works and, and strange experiments and you know, anom anomalous limit cases in literature. We didn't get any exposure to it. And I was uh, uh, thinking I'd felt cheated. Of course, then that required a you know a massive uh, re-education, going back and looking uh, through throughout the history twice, you know, you know once for the official approved versions of literary history, and then once for the you know these traditions that had a boatload of really very good ideas. And um, uh, I discovered at that point that it, the reason I had so many misgivings about my mediocrity uh, was that I was trying to become the poet I should be, rather than the kind of poet I could be. And I think that uh, it's incumbent upon teachers to at least make sure that uh, students are given enough tools to become the kind of poet they might like to be, right? That they could be, rather than the, the one they should be. And uh, I, I understood that uh, I, I was interested in poetry and, and language not because of uh, that I had important, you know, personal stories to tell about my my own experience, but in fact because I loved the material sensorial experience of language itself. Uh, all its structural features, all of its granular textures, um, its 
um, idiosyncrasies. Um, these all seem to me very appealing. Uh, and when I leaned into that, those sets of interests, I discovered that I could actually make uh, meaningful contributions. I was, I was more pleased with the uh, things that I made because they looked, um, they looked like original contributions. They, they also, you know, to me felt like they were going to, through growth, uh, become something meaningful and worthwhile to pursue that I'm, that I might be able to make a mark on my literary tradition. And I think, I think it conforms to my own attitudes, um, as a kind of lay scientist. I, I know that I'm scientifically, you know, framed at, at heart. Uh, the sciences were my best subjects in school, but not the ones about which I felt the most uh, passionate, but nevertheless, they were my best performing, um, skill sets. And I've never, I've never abandoned my, a uh, very fundamental interest in a wide variety of uh, sciences. And uh, I, I, once I, once I understood that I, my relationship to language was uh, going to be experimental, that I was going to actually uh, use language as a means of exploring its potential, uh, I, I became, my productivity became more fruitful. I, I, I learned how to be a, the poet I could be. Um, and uh, again, it's not a trajectory I, I think, you know, applies to everyone. I'm not you know, suggesting that this is a, um, uh, you know, the only, only path that a person can take in en route to becoming a poet, but it applied to me. Uh, and, um, uh, as, and as a consequence, I, I, you know, I've benefited from, from this, uh, degree of engagement with languages, uh, as you described it, a particle accelerator, uh, a place where these little particulates, I don't know, letters or syllables, word forms, uh, get smashed together into unusual combinations in order to create a kind of exotic matter, uh, that, uh, might never, might not have otherwise existed on the planet. Uh, I've joked that I, that as a poet, I feel like, uh, some secret scientist working at area 51 with an alien technology, trying to reverse engineer this thing, uh, for human purposes, because in some respects, language is still a very a uh, strange uh, feature of consciousness. It's a very unusual uh, phenomenon uh, that we, I, th I think, only very poorly understand. And we presume that its primary function is uh, to enable communication. Certainly that's its primary function as part of our social contract, but it has all of these other aptitudes, you know, uh, kind of un, uh, unacknowledged affordances uh, that we've only had a few thousand years to truly explore, right? Uh, and um, it, it's only going to get more interesting, you know, as technologies change, as our, as our uh, languages become uh, more um, robust and, um, and universal. It's it, the, the, the nature of what you can do with a poem will become all the more weird and interesting. Mm, yeah, it, it does uh, sort of mixing my metaphors between, is it, is it like doing particle physics or is it like doing pure, pure maths where, um, and perhaps the reason is, you know, physics operates so much with the languages of maths, but maths there is being used like that communication aid to describe nature. But of course, the pure mathematicians say, no, let's, let's just see what we can do with this, this structure. And, uh, I mean, they're not even sure whether they're discovering something that's out there that's real. I mean, I think most do, or, or whether it's just some, again, game. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoy this idea well, of well, there, there is something uncanny about mathematics mm. and its elegance and uh, um, uh, mutually reinforcing logistical logical structures uh, the, it's too good to be true 
And it seems to me that every single mathematical invention, every mathematical uh, discovery, even at, even if at first it doesn't seem to apply to a physical phenomenon, it almost end, we almost mm. always end up discovering uh, some sort of phenomenon to which the mathematical tool could apply. And that seems to me unreasonably good, just unreasonable. <laughs> just, yeah, why, I think, yeah, why, is it, why is it that it, it's so well suited to explaining uh, the universe, uh, even though it seems to be you know, primarily a product of human cognition and, and intellectual reasoning? And yet, yeah, I think that's right. It, you know, these strange, strange, you know, you know, bizarre algorithms or unusual equations or weird formulae that appear to be just, you know, beautiful happenstances of reasoning and don't apply to any phenomenon. And then we discover that, in fact, there is a, there is a phenomenon to which they could conceivably apply. And uh, that's very odd. I think that that's truly odd. And it may be that uh, the job of the poet is to kind of re- replicate that sense of uncanniness uh through language right to to uh extract a a kind of unforeseen potential from the language that seems to be uh, all too adequate right for um uh, explaining the world like a poem has often an uncanny ability to express something you didn't even know needed to be expressed there's no phenomenon like that existed right you don't know that there's a quality or or um tenor of emotion that is fundamentally undescribable. And then voila, you get a, a poem that somehow seems to capture that um, anomalous, fleeting, uh, uh, novel emotion perfectly. Um, and uh, to me, that, that's, a, that's a very unusual feature of, of language that, that we could you know, alter a state of consciousness by you know, mixing and matching words and unusual combinations. You can create some very unusual emotional resonances that are unexpected. To me, that's a, a wonderful surprise about the language. Uh, I yeah. will note that I've done, I've tried to do things with language that I at first looked very difficult, really impossible to be frank, they're just utterly impossible. And uh, despite uh, uh, moments of real despair, wondering if it was you know, even feasible to uh, fulfill a task, I'm always eventually rewarded uh, by the language itself. It's somehow, uh, grants me my wish and gives me the means by which to say the thing uh, that I uh, didn't know I needed to say, uh, according to this you know unusual set of constraints or rules. Somehow the language managed to figure out uh, a means by which to express mm-hmm. itself or convey convey something, despite these um, uh, limitations that are truly intended to hobble it, make you know make make the quality of its expression completely hard or if, if not impossible. Yeah, that's a lovely thought as well. That that it's not so much consciousness trying to express some pre-existing attitude of of the writer, but but language creating new attitudes, pushing language through this lab, as it were, um, discovering a yeah. new material or arrangement of it, and uh, sure. finding I- that it produces a new state in the in the reader. I've, I've tried to demonstrate the writing process directly to uh, st- uh, students. I uh, would show them a f- you know, phraseology and then try to improve it. And uh, what always uh, caused them you know, some wonderment and, and I think irritation is that uh, uh, I wouldn't care what the phrase was saying. Uh, they were always concerned that surely I would be more worried about what it was saying and, and be trying to um, um, condition uh, the, the writing to actually say it better. And instead, I was, you know, attempting to just simply improve the merits of the phrase itself and end up discovering generatively what it might be possible to say. 
rather than trying mm. to say something that already pre-exists. And this is the what I, I like about the perhaps experimental understanding of language is that you're trying to discover what, what needs to be said um, rather than uh, make the language amenable to what you would prefer to say. And uh, uh, I mean, you could, of course, do that. You make the language amenable to what you would prefer to say. But I, I have a lot of curiosity about potential language. And in many cases, I, I, I start with a principle, you know, I, I believe I've been traveling in one path or one direction and discover that it's much better to veer off, uh, you know, this slight digression and uh, follow, follow this otherwise unexplored uh, path because it takes you to someplace um, perhaps better or more interesting at the very least. And when, when seeing that writing process and when I apply mechanical processes of editing and uh, you know, using using a set of uh, technical aptitudes that don't require a great deal of talent or you know skill to implement, uh, students would be amazed. The thing would just get increasingly better and and improved, but it wouldn't have much to do with something that they might have intentionally wanted to say. It would it would it was a you know a way of, of formulating increasingly um, apt discoveries. You know, like improving the quality of what you say. Uh, so it becomes more magical or enchanting, and yet it, it surprises you. The end result surprises you. And I was hoping that students would take pleasure in the epiphany, right? Like the surprise. Right. I, look, look what I said. I didn't even mean to say it. And look, look at how beautiful it is, right? To me, that that's something that is a you know a pleasure you might miss out on if you already know what you're going to say in advance, and then just simply try to you know say it. I think I think there really is some element of discovery and exploratory, you know character to to writing right writing is the act of figuring out what you want to say without meaning to say it hmm. well, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you for a reading of one of your poems because i i, I think they they do just illustrate this this element of discovery <laughs> there are some surprising lines you, you have one in mind. um uh, i must admit i'm unprepared but I, I can i could probably read you something from Unoya for sure that's easy to find um uh, yeah, that that would be great. I think um, you know. I guess I, yeah. I was thinking either you know or, or crystallography. One of those kind of two. I, I think you know okay. is a perfect one actually because it it really you know for me just illustrates yeah some of the some of the key themes here. So perhaps you can describe the the project for anyone who's who's not heard of it, and then oh yeah, um, sure, of course. Unoya um, uh, spelled E U N O I A is the shortest word in English to contain all five vowels. And uh, the word quite literally means beautiful thinking. Uh, the word was coined by Aristotle uh, to describe the state of mind that you must occupy if you want to make a friend. You have to be in a state of eunoia because that word beautiful thinking in Greek also means goodwill. Um, so to be in a state of goodwill, uh, of course, is a friendly feeling, and uh, it just so happens that in Greek, goodwill likewise means beautiful thinking. I think it's a marvelous metaphor for poetry. Um, mm -hmm. uh, this word uh, is the shortest to contain all the vowels, and it's, it's much like the word paranoia, except instead of saying para, you say you, E-U-N-O-I-A, eunoia. Uh, the work is written in five chapters, each of which tells uh, a perfectly coherent, uh, uh, beautiful euphonic story uh, that sounds unlabored. If I were to read an excerpt to you aloud without informing you about it, I don't think you would notice much wrong with it. Although after, a f uh, I think, a few minutes, you might begin to detect some unusualness in the work um, because each of these uh, stories uh, tells a perfectly straightforward narrative, but does so 
highlighting exclusively the use of a single vowel. So in the first chapter, chapter A, uh, the only vowel that appears in the chapter is the letter A. No other vowel appears in, the, in that story at all. So I can only use words that use the vowel A exclusively, words like uh, abracadabra, banana, mat, cat, bat. Um, I can't use the word the, I can't use you know, any other uh, words that uh, break from this constraint. And uh, it, hence the very limited lexicon uh, with which to work. And I uh, strive to exhaust that lexicon as efficiently as possible. So ideally each one of the words gets used in the story uh, likely no more than once. Uh, and uh, I do this for each of the chapters. So there's a, an E chapter, an I chapter, an O chapter, a U chapter, each of which exhausts its uh, respective lexicon and tells uh, a story that uh, incorporates all of those words uh, without uh, apparent labor and effort. Uh, it took me seven years to write the book. Uh, I had to read through the third Webster's New International Collegiate Dictionary, a three-volume dictionary, five times by hand to generate the appropriate uh, vocabularies for each of these stories. Um, I analyzed that lexicon, sorting it into parts of speech and to topical categories in order to figure out what the vowels could say on their own. I didn't come with prefabricated stories and then attempt to make them to fit. Hence, you know, the exploratory uh, kind of generative feature of this, of this constraint. The vowels, in effect, are showing what they could say if they could speak for themselves exclusively. Hmm. And one of the great discoveries I made in the course of this, something that doesn't really conform with my um, educated understanding of language, is that the vowels seem to have personalities. Um, hmm. uh, A and E, for example, are elegiac and courtly in tone, whereas by comparison, O and U are uh, jollier and more ribald, if not obscene in tone. And I think that these uh, personalities of the vowels probably contribute in part to the connotative valences of words. Why some words you know, have particular moods associated with them. It may in fact have something to do with the vowel distributions of these noises across them. Uh, it seems to me that words that you know, feature a lot of O's in them tend to be uh, more nonsensical and, and dumb. You know, words like lollipop and igloo are funnier than uh, words like abracadabra, right? And, and beneficence or something like that. There's, there's just, there's, you know, the, uh, something to the distribution of the vowels that uh, adds, I think, an emotional valence to the words themselves. So yeah. for your listeners, I, I can perform perhaps a, a short excerpt from chapter E. Um, this uh, is the opening paragraph. Um, most of these um, chapters have a self-reflexive element to them. They talk about the constraint. And this is uh, an excerpt from chapter E uh, dedicated to uh, René Crevel, a uh, French poet. In fettered, these sentences repress free speech. The text deletes selected letters. We see the revered exegete reject metered verse, the sestet, the tercet, even les saints élevés en grec. He rebels. He sets new precedents. He lets cleverness exceed decent levels. He eschews the esteemed genres, the expected themes, even les belles lettres en vers. He prefers the perverse French esthetes, Verne, Perret, Jeunet, Pirec. Hence, he pens fervent screeds, then enters the street where he sells these letterpress newsletters, three cents per sheet. He engenders perfect newness wherever we need 
fresh terms. And uh, each of the chapters proceed in this manner, uh, using this constraint to say something uh, intelligible. I hope, you know, in, in some cases sublime, if not uncanny, and in other cases, I hope it's, you know, witty and, and pleasant and funny. Yeah, I think those are some of the, you know, for me, some of the really surprising aspects of the book are how this rigorous limitation just produces so much fun. It's like really humorous. Um, and yeah, it is intriguing, as you say, to to see how the vowels do appear to have different characters. Uh, one thing there's, there's, I was seeing recently, there was a study about the rhymes used in rap music and how um, what vowels with higher frequency second formants, well, basically they have the, the vowels which have a higher frequency component typically um, tend to be used on the beat. And in particular, if there's a rhyme, they're, they're used on the beat. And, and, the, and the thinking is, well, just as in orchestras where the singers tend to um, use a range around three kilohertz to be heard over the bass of the orchestra, these higher frequency vowels um you know will be better communicated better more likely to be to be heard and so you know one already sees there there could be an entry point into you know just with music why particular vowels and and you know are used in certain ways um but it is yeah <laughs> it's completely fascinating uh and i yeah i must wonder at all the things that you learned from writing that that don't appear in the book <laughs> oh well i certainly uh you know just made all kinds of bizarre discoveries um I, I mean it's probably uh wise to note that the primary constraint this what we would call a univocal libogram the exclusive use of the vowel to the exclusion of all other letters um constitutes a primary constraint but what makes the work i mm. think uh, meaningful and in, you know grants it some literary value is that it, it's there's other subsidiary constraints. There's you might have detected uh, euphonies uh, around uh, rhythm, meter, uh, internal rhyme, features of uh, prosody that would uh, make the work uh, appealing to the ear. There is an obsessive uh, use of uh, syntactic parallelism uh, that is so rigorous it actually conforms right down to the letter counts in phrases and uh, meter in syllables. Like it's just it, the, the, there's a certain mania an obsessive compulsive desire to amplify the uh, uh, syntactical and grammatical features of the work, um, mm. uh, their, their musicality, their repetitive uh, riffs, you know, rhyme schemes, all kinds of things are going on in, in the work. In addition to attempting to say something intelligible and uh, coherent uh, using only one of the five vowels. Uh, very difficult, but yeah. uh, uh, the uh, I ended up I ended up uh, discovering that I, you know I might have missed a word or I would need a um, uh, some particular uh, word that wasn't uh, immediately evident in my repertoire, and I'd have to go looking to make sure that I hadn't missed it. Um, you know, I would be sitting there thinking, "There's got to be a, a two-syllable word that has only O's in it that represents a, you know a name for a cheese." There has to be, <laughs> and I have to look, go looking uh, because I needed that. Like I just knew that was the constraint. Like, like in order for this sentence to end, I need I need a word that fits 
this bit of prosody. It has to rhyme like this. It has to look like this. And I don't know what that word is. Um, and the language would, would reward me with, uh, you know, options. It would show me that there was in fact, uh, some, you know, potential way to actually fill that gap musically in, in a text. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, the, what I discovered is that, is that the language is pretty resilient, uh, that it might yeah. be uncensorable, uh, that uh, it, it, it's a reassuring thing to note, uh, you know, in eras of censoriousness and, I don't know, autocratic control of speech, you know, across the political spectrum, uh, that language actually seems to find all kinds of um, inventive ways to um, deke around these obstacles that would prevent it from you know, finding forms of self-expression that, e that no matter how delirious my constraints were here, the, the language, language seemed to, to figure out, uh, you know, there were, there were opportunities for, for me to say something that wasn't simply nonsensical or ridiculous, but actually meaningful and, and perhaps um, thematically substantive, you know, it was possible to say something really, you know, significant, but uh, under, under the duresses of, of these constraints. I would, I would yeah. say that's the biggest thing I've learned. You know, is, is that I have a great yeah, deal think, of faith now in, in the power of language to transcend all of these um, efforts to curtail its potential. It strikes me that you're probably the best person prepared if there was a semiotic apocalypse and we we dropped one of the vowels or even all but one of the vowels. Um, you'd still have a voice while we'd be figuring it out. But well, it, it is an incredible I, I, I demonstration. We might all have a voice despite that. Like, like it's, it, yeah. it's not just the, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the, the, it, 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 this, I guess one role of poetry is to rejuvenate the language when the language uh, finds itself um, uh, uh, degraded and debased yeah. uh, when it becomes uh, in, in, incapable of uh, serving the interests of, of our expression, you know, becomes uh, counterfeit or cliche, hackneyed, autocratic, perhaps, you know, po poetry stands in and introduces new noise, new information, new, uh, you know, qualities or models of expression that, uh, that offer alternatives, right, uh, subvert, you know, those notions. Uh, you know, I think that's an important job of poetry, one that's become increasingly its purpose, you know, before it might have been used to found a civilization, you know, found a religion, uh, you know, perhaps today it, it constitutes a, a way of reinventing and reinvigorating an otherwise dilapidated language, you know, reinjecting it with new uh, genetic diversity or, you know, new, uh, new models of expression that might, that might rescue us uh, from an exhausted uh, set of idioms. Yeah. And, uh, and it's interesting that one of the ways of doing that is to sort of apparently remove some of the capability by, as you say, um, or in this case, uh, in each chapter. Yeah, I mean, there's, lots of, there's lots of technical strategies that I, you could deploy. I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that uh, playing this one kind of game is the only thing to do, but um, you know, the it, it, it's proven fruitful for me to, to attempt to do things that are impossible. I would say that that's probably a large part of my reputational economy is, is to be the guy who does uh, uh, things that are just really, really hard, very, very difficult that at first look quite impossible. And, and um, even now, uh, you know, the projects I work on, I can't be sure are completable. Um, it's very worrying sometimes that uh, I may have done something that is truly too difficult for me to fulfill. Yeah. I mean, that's the character of 
empirical experiments, right? Um, which it is. I mean, there's a lot of scientific projects that, of course, have taken uh, decades uh, to to invalidate right, or, or prove. And I, I would just dislike being the kind of scientist who, uh, you know, has invested an entire career um, in one attempt, right, to, you know, validate a theorem only to have it experimentally disproved. You know, I think that would be a really disgruntling thing to happen, right? You know, if I, if I spent my entire career trying to validate loop quantum gravity or you know, string theory, yeah. only to discover that despite their mathematical beauty, they're in fact wrong. I, I think that would be a disheartening thing to, to occur and, you know, would be ruinous. Um, uh, but, you know, it's it's part of the risk of trying to make a discovery. I, I, I'd like to be the kind of poet who continues to make discoveries about language, you know, that, that there's a, a truly experimental, yeah. I mean, that quite literally dimension to the work. Um, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to have a laboratory. I'd like to be the kind of guy who really would be, you know, <laughs> uh, conducting experiments in something like a white room in a white lab coat with a clipboard. Yeah. And it, I mean, I think... As you say, this is what can prevent language from being moribund is by putting some constraints in. It's not so much the constraint. It's it's a way of moving us out of the normal space that language is occupying or our language is occupying to explore the wider space that 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 we that it could be. Um, so on this um, topic of wanting to be a scientist, it, you seem to have gone some way down that route, right? And you perhaps you can describe uh, the Xenotex project, which is just takes constraint to yet another level um, and is, I think, extremely, well, almost say objectively extremely ambitious. Uh, yeah. Uh, so could you, yeah, could you describe... Well, in, in the wake of uh, completing Unoya yeah. uh, 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 almost uh, 22 years ago, um, uh, the book went on to become uh, an international bestseller. Uh, it, uh, it, it became the touchstone of my career, uh, went on to win uh, the biggest prize you could win for a single book of poetry in the world, uh, the Griffin Prize. And uh, in the wake of that uh, success, uh, a success that didn't feel very guaranteed when I was working on the work, I uh, wanted to do something even more ambitious. And uh, for the last uh, 22 years, it's, it's going to be you know, 23 years, I think, I've been working on a, a, a project uh, that's proven to be very difficult, uh, possibly impossible, might be you know, impossible. Um, I'm trying to write a, 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 a very small poem and then through a process of encipherment, translate it into a sequence of genetic nucleotides to create a gene out of this poem. And then with the assistance of a laboratory, would uh, implant uh, this poem into the genome of a bacterium, replacing part of its genetic code with my text so that the organism would now become the living embodiment of that poem. Now, lots of artists and scientists have enciphered information into the genomes of organisms. Uh, it would be relatively straightforward to do so. And if that's all I wanted to do, I could have had this project finished 20 years ago. But uh, the, uh, the project uh, is more ambitious than simply preserving a poem in an organism. Uh, I, unlike all of these other prior uh, uh, precedent works, uh, the organism can actually read my poem. It's written according to a series of constraints that make it possible for this uh, genetic encipherment to be interpretable uh, by the organism. It would understand the poem as a set of instructions 
for building in response a protein. A protein just consists of a long sequence of amino acids, uh, sequentially arranged, and it just so happens that uh, my poem is written in such a way that when the organism produces this sequence of amino acids, that chemical sequence is likewise an encipherment for a totally different poem that also makes sense and answers mine in dialogue with the poem that I've implanted into the organism. So in effect, I've uh, tried gen to genetically engineer a bacterium so that it becomes not only an archive for storing my poem, it becomes a machine for writing a poem in response. And I've managed to demonstrate that it's possible to do this. Uh, uh, in 2015, I was capable of uh, showing to the world that it's possible to fulfill this bizarre biochemical constraint uh, to enter into this kind of dialogue between the English language and the genetic code. Um, and um, even, the, even these two little poems, they took about four years to write. Uh, I worked on nothing else for four years except these two little poems to see if it was possible to write them according to these uh, immense battery of constraints. Um, but the, the ultimate outcome is uh, not simply to demonstrate the viability of such uh, an exercise, but to actually uh, implant the poem into the genome of uh, a very surreal organism, a very old bacterium called Dinococcus radiodurans, an extremophile capable of surviving in almost any hostile environment imaginable. Um, this organism uh, is a kind of evolutionary dead end uh, because it doesn't mm -hmm. change or mutate very easily. Uh, when its DNA is uh, damaged or mutated, uh, it fixes it, repairs it almost immediately. And as a consequence, uh, it resists adaptive change. And for this reason, it's not a, you know, an evolutionary resilient organism. But um, uh, strangely enough, it's already so well adapted to the utter lethality of the universe that it doesn't need to change very much <laughs> at all. Uh, uh, you, know, you, it, you can scorch it, freeze it, wither it, and it won't die. Uh, it can um, survive a thousand times the dosage of gamma radiation that would instantly kill a human being. Uh, it can even survive in the open vacuum of outer space. Uh, we don't know uh, really what its native environment might have been uh, when it first appeared on the planet because there are no environments that uh, have such extremes of tolerance uh, across such a wide spectrum of lethality. So. Uh, you know, how, what would drive the evolution of this organism into these various niches that, that it seems to universally keep, you know, occupy. Some scientists have gone so far as to speculate, I think extravagantly, that the organism might have spent at least part of its evolutionary history off the planet Earth in an extraterrestrial environment before being returned to the Earth, you know, even more adapted uh, than before. Um, uh, all of these scenarios are pretty interesting. It's a very strange organism. And uh, by putting my poem into this particular host, I'd uh, be effectively writing a book that could conceivably outlast terrestrial civilization. And it might be on the planet Earth when the sun explodes. I'm in effect trying to write a book that lasts forever. That's the, the nature of the project. And um, I think I'm about on the verge of uh, stating maybe about this time next year, that I'm going to succeed at this project. Uh, up until now, it's been uh, very worrying. <laughs> uh, I haven't been able to uh, validate uh, any of my results, my efforts to design uh, this, this genetic sequence and the resulting protein in a manner which would make it viable uh, to persist in this organism. But I uh, think pretty much now on the threshold of success, and I'm likely to be able to say that I think by this time next year that I've succeeded. And um, um, I'm I'm hoping that that transpires. I would, I would admit that 
up until now, I have been unsure that I'm smart enough to actually figure out how to do this. Uh, I've, you know, I've been worried my IQ might be too low to um, acquire uh, the aptitudes needed to solve these problems. Certainly, I collaborate with lots of scientists, but uh, they're just as mystified uh, by the project as I am, uh, because it's really the cutting edge of what we know about uh, genetics and proteomics. And while they can help me build things and test things, uh, they can't help me troubleshoot or solve problems. I have to do all of that myself. They won't help me with design. I have to do all of that myself. So I'm a, an autodidact uh, in uh, you know one small corner of genetic engineering and one small corner of proteomic engineering. When I first started this project 20 years ago, uh, even sequencing a bacterium of this sort would have cost me tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And I asked for that money, you know, in grants, whereas now it would, you know, cost only a few thousand dollars and I could probably get it done in a few days, just like ordering a pizza and having it delivered. It, it, the, the change in technology over the course of work on this project is immense and remarkable, miraculous even. So, um, you know, I started doing this project early um, in the 21st century uh, at the at the dawn of current bioinformatics, I had to teach myself a whole set of new skills uh, and apply them uh, poetically. Uh, it's at every step. There's been uh, numerous hurdles to overcome, many of which constitute uh, you know cutting edge um, challenges uh, that um, are mystifying not just to me but to scientific advisors. And as a consequence, you know it's taken a very long time to figure out how to get to the point where I am now, where I can, I think I can. I can be, begin now safely to say that I'm, I'm going to succeed at this project. Fantastic. Yeah. It, I love the ambition of not only doing something really hard, but making it live forever. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, well, you know, this, I knew how hard it was when I first started, I might not have been quite so uh, cavalier about embarking on this task. <laughs> uh, you right. know, I, I, <laughs> Yeah, I, and it's also wonderful to see someone moving from poetry into the world of science, which I think there's lots of examples where people go the other way, or at least scientists who have poetry as a sideline or a hobby, or or sometimes um, in the case of Miroslav Holub, who I was talking to, um, I had a chap called Sam Illingworth on, on the podcast, and uh, Holub thought of himself as a scientist, although he's much better known for his his poetry. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to see movement in the opposite direction and, and not just doing something sort of fiddling around with some knobs in science, but doing something really, as you say, really difficult, which is baffling even to people who, who were, you know, for whom this is their bread and butter. Um, and adds that extra layer of constraint as well. You, you not only have these very, very challenging linguistic constraints, but this uh, bacterium can't reject uh, the um, the code that you put into it. It needs to um, propagate. Uh, I, I want to talk about though the the linguistic constraints first, because you you sort of brushed over the fact that oh yes this this was hard. It took me four years, <laughs> but I mean it was super hard. This this project of um, basically having a single set of symbols interpretable in in two different ways and what it i i just love this idea of a code that is hiding in plain sight you know codes that are just jumbled sets of letters one has to think well this is this is just asking for attention right <laughs> like people are people are going to see that this is some 
um, encrypted text. What if you could plain, you know, put codes in some, you know, language that just looks completely readable, but one reads it the wrong way, uh, and and when you know the secret, it reveals an entirely different text. How did you come up with that idea? And uh, yeah, how difficult was it to implement? Well, in the course of uh, uh, doing the required research to figure out how to um, produce two texts that would be mutually enciphered at the genetic level, uh, one encipherable as a DNA sequence and one that would result in uh, an equally uh, enciphered, uh, effectively RNA sequence, um, you know, a, a complementary sequence of, of, of an encipherment. I, uh, I knew that I would have to write the poem according to this kind of constraint. People have asked me what it was like to imagine writing this work. And I would say, if you've played, um, uh, I don't know, uh, one of the logic games you might see in a Sunday uh, newspaper where they give you uh, a coded message that looks like nonsense, but uh, through an analysis of letter frequencies and letter patterns, you might begin to substitute uh, letters for the for the um, the uh, code text and proceed through some logic and trial and error, uh, you know, decrypt the message. And those games were fun to play when I was a kid. But uh, I did wonder when I was a child why uh, we weren't given uh, a plain text message. We were given a message that made sense, but we're then given to understand it actually contained a coded message. And again, if we analyzed its letter patterns and letter frequencies, we'd be able to translate it into a decrypted text uh, using the same principles that we would use in any other kind of cipher. Uh, and now I understand why uh, you know no game <laughs> designers did this. Uh, it, it, it's actually an exceptionally difficult uh, constraint uh, and made all the uh, harder uh, because in my case, I, I, I had to produce these two texts so that they would be mutually enciphering each other. Um, and as a consequence, uh, uh, the letters of the alphabet would have to be mutually transposable with their cognates. So imagine enciphering the alphabet such that mm. you pair off you know, letters with each other and they're mutually paired off. So if I sign uh, A to E, I have to sign E to A. If I sign T to H, I have to sign H to T, whatever I might do. Uh, and... Uh, Imagine, you know, just doing this one kind of constraint for the assignation of letters to the alphabet. So they're mutually correlated. Uh, they're just shy of 8 trillion different ways of enciphering the alphabet, according to that constraint. There's about 8 trillion. Now imagine, you know, using some rule of thumb, a heuristic, for picking one of those ciphers that you hope might produce uh, a rich and interesting vocabulary that's uh, resilient enough uh, to make messages out of it. Uh, pick one of those ciphers out of the 8 trillion and then write a beautiful poem that makes sense in such a way that if you were to swap out every letter in that poem and replace it with its cognate from the cipher, you get a new poem that also makes sense and is just as beautiful. So in effect, you're you know attempting to find a plain text that can be deciphered into uh, a totally different cipher text. Um, uh, as it turns out, it's very, very hard to do this. Um, I, I, you know, taught myself enough computer programming skills to build a tool that would permit me to explore these ciphers, to find the, you know, vocabularies, uh, to study them and, uh, you know, test their ability to be used uh, as uh, viable modes of expression. And um, the largest vocabulary I could generate was a, a little shy of 700 words. And I explored, you know, uh, these um, opportunities 
these options in descending order of vocabulary size. And uh, even large vocabularies proved to be um, impossible. It was, not, it was not possible to say two sentences, even two phrases that were mutually meaningful. Um, mm. I spent, I wasted a year um, uh, trying to encipher uh, uh, the two words, language and virus. I wanted those two words to be in the poem if possible. <laughs> and as it turns out, uh, it's possible to, there's, there's, there's a handful of ciphers that, that translate language into another word. Um, and they're limited. Um, uh, the first of which is I could translate the word language into the word toxicoid, you know, meaning poisonous. I could translate the word language into uh, foxtrots. Uh, so, you know, every time I use the word language in one poem, I'd have to use the word foxtrots in the other and vice versa. Um, and then the third one was uh, copy boys. And copy boys looked useful because if I could, if I could translate the word language into copy boys, I could translate the word virus into tribe. And that looked plausible to me. And I spent a year exploring the entire, you know, uh, repertoire of available ciphers that would permit me to mutually encode these words with each other. And I could not find a poem anywhere in their midst. Nothing. I wasted a whole year on, mm. on just on just those options, uh, mm. thinking that that was going to prove viable. Uh, I, I whittled uh, down these options over many years until I was now scraping the bottom of the barrels, getting down to vocabularies that were less than 150 words. And this, you know, means that you know, the le letters are now being mutually correlated with letters that are a little further away on the frequency table from their, from their proximate neighbors. Obviously, I'm not going to typically pick a cipher that, you know, assigns the letter A to the letter Z, because there I'm going to be swapping out a relatively common letter with a very uncommon letter. Mm. Chances are there are not many, you know, words in the language that will do that. Um, and in this case, I, I got down to a vocabulary of about 120 words and found the only uh, cipher that actually permits me to say anything poetic and meaningful. And as it turns out, these, the, the two poems that I ended up discovering, I would say that I really didn't write them. I found the vocabulary and probably found the only statements that are possible to say with this uh, limited lexicon. And it just so happens that the poem I've written um, seems to be written in the voice of Orpheus and as a kind of claim made about the creativeness of language. Uh, and in response, the organism writes a poem uh, that seems to be written in the voice of Eurydice about uh, the uh, um, morbidness, the, 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 the uh, decreativeness of language. Uh, one poem refuting the merits of the other, a kind of dialogue that conforms to a pastoral tradition of poetry in which a herd boy attempts to seduce a nymphette and the nymphette says no. Um, and given the hellish nature of the organism into which I was hoping to put these poems, these two voices of Orpheus and Eurydice appearing uh, out of the blue, out of eight trillion ciphers uh, by accident, by happenstance, seem to me uncanny, spooky. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they, they're not exactly you know, poems I would typically write, uh, but in their fragility, in their um, tentativeness, uh, I think they reflect something about the the nature of life and the cosmos itself. I mean, there are probably 8 trillion worlds alone in the galaxy, the Milky Way, uh, most of which, so far as we might tell, appear barren and it's all deserts out there. There's not much evidence that there's sentience or, uh, you know, grandiose empirical, you know, like imperial civilizations, you know, uh, um, ruling over the galaxy. Uh, so we don't see much evidence of, of sentience and intelligence, i.e., you know, not much evidence of poetry anywhere in the cosmos. 
And, you know, there's only one planet, you know, there's only one spot where there's poetry and it just happens to be one out of eight trillion. Um, uh, and to me, that that's what, you know, makes these poems valuable to me is that there's the, they, they're the only ones that could be derived from this bizarre constraint. They seem to speak uh, meaningfully to an important story in the history of poetry, and they seem like an appropriate fit uh, for, uh, for this project. Um, and they've taken on a kind of talismanic value for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is uh, completely mind-boggling, the, the uncanniness, I guess, that the words coming out of, you know, the usable vocabulary that you should have um, is very much in this pastoral tradition. There's woe and liar and things. It, it reminds me as well of um, coming back to this idea of language as a, or, or, or poetry as empirical experiments. One of the other things that it, one of the things it seems to prove to me is it's, it's almost a response to Wittgenstein's indeterminacy of translation where it, it, not, it doesn't hit it obliquely, uh, sorry, it doesn't hit it squarely on the head, but certainly an oblique sort of response to that where uh, I remember having a discussion with someone about this saying, well, of course, yeah, Wittgenstein shows for a single word that you know, the famous example being Gavagai, where a anthropologist is parachuted into some some uh, distant tribe and is trying to figure out what they're talking about when they point to this, in his mind, rabbit-shaped, you know, thing that keeps moving around. And Wittgenstein keeps on pointing out, well, you know, all the instant, all, all he's going to learn is the instances by which you make that utterance, Gavagai. But that's not going to tell him what. It is right. He's not going right. to be able to step inside, and um, you know, carried even further. Wittgenstein's in terms of you know thesis is something like, well, we don't even know the meaning of our own words, right? <laughs> how do we understand how we're employing language? But then the thought goes, well, actually, you know, that's a very looking at a single word in isolation. That's one thing, but when you look at the way that things have to be combined, you know, how possible is it? that we could be completely talking at cross purposes and that all the words that I say could be mapped to you in a completely different way. Just as, you know, one way of understanding Orpheus and Eurydice is that uh, the organism, there is a complete breakdown of understanding and one text is completely misinterpreted, but in a uh, perfectly um sensible or you know sense making fashion by the organism uh, and that seems just incredibly difficult to do um so that that's in some ways an encouraging result like we, we don't we are talking we think a common language well it, 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 to me the, the 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 point of the exercise the outcome of it is to induce in you the sense of uncanniness or spookiness uh the surprise uh, i mean I, I've, I've said before that i there's occasions when, when the language seems to reward me, uh, for a certain faith in it, you know, uh, I, I burned up a lot of, you know, treasure and effort and blood and toil, right. On, you know, on the altar of this little organism, uh, which finally, uh, you know, seems to say yes, uh, to, to what I've given it. And, um, uh, you know, there, there's occasions when, uh, you know, some folks say I'm forcing this organism to do something, you know, that's not capable of doing. And, and, uh, I'm a tyrannical figure for him 
impinging upon its uh, capacity to do things. And I, and I have to keep correcting people and say, no, it's the other way around. <laughs> I mean, I can't just do, I can't make it do anything I want. Uh, I have to actually comply. Uh, entirely with uh, its uh, impositions upon me. Uh, it tells me what to do and how to appease it and make it possible for, for, for this thing to work. I don't get to do anything without its permission in some mm. sense. It, and that, that's always what it's been a challenge for, you know, certainly in the last uh, 10 years at least, is trying to figure out how uh, to make myself acceptable uh, to it, right? Like what constitutes an adequate um, intervention in, in its own, you know, uh, style of living. Like what would it, what would it say if it, if it was, a, if it, if it would permit me to participate in a dialogue with it? Yeah. It, it reminds me, oh, I should first say, I think I said Wittgenstein when I meant Quine, but, uh, never mind. but it reminds me of your, your comments right at the beginning where you say, well, constraint, part of the use of constraint has been to aid the propagation i guess of poetry in terms of making it memorable uh, and of course well the poet is forced to infetter to use a beautiful word which <laughs> um i discovered by you know to infetter his 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 thoughts into um particular structures so so as to guarantee their chances of of propagation um and you have an even more rigorous set of constraints but but the end goal is is rather similar to to make um, to encipher your poem into uh, De Radio Dorans, you have to abide by what that organism uh, permits you to do. And if you manage to get that right, then there is a chance that this is, you know, the last poem on earth. Something like that. I mean, yeah, but the, the, you know, Poets, of course, pay lip service to the immortality of their art form, but uh, I don't think they believe it. Uh, you know, and of course, I'm trying, I, I think, to make literal this this metaphor, at, at least in some you know conceptual or aesthetic framework, to uh, you know sh show that it's possible to imagine that we might be able to uh, protect our cultural legacy against disasters. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a you know a lot of uh, cosmic disasters that await you know. Uh, sentient life in so far, and we're not protected very well against them. Uh, and, you know, I think there's some ethical demand that we try to preserve the best of our culture against uh, disaster in order to ensure its ongoing transmission through time um, uh, in the hope that, of course, it um, testifies well to our existence and allows us to continue to um, uh, evolve into, you know, an even more resilient, more robust uh, civilization. And the techniques I'm deploying here are potentially exploitable in the future to protect uh, cultural information against uh, planetary disasters, you know, astrophysical barrage, thermonuclear warfare. Um, they're, uh, you know, in intended, I think, to extend the scale of our horizons for cultural contribution beyond perhaps, you know, our own immediate uh, mortality and perhaps, you know, the extinction of the species, but, you know, it, it, you know, a kind of cosmic address in the way that, for example, the Voyager probes or the pioneer probes mm. attempt, uh, you know, very fleetingly to address perhaps some civilization that's higher up on the Kardashev scale than us, right? You know, we're trying to address, you know, um, a, a kind of vote of audience uh, that's bigger than ourselves that we hope might exist. We don't know if it's out there, but we plan accordingly as though it were. And I think that that's a kind of poetic attitude. Most poets, I think, are writing for themselves and whatever strangers might be out there willing to listen. 
and you don't know who they are. <laughs> you have no clue. And they haven't introduced themselves. Usually they never do. <laughs> you know, you speak into a void and it's gone, right? Um, mm. These two poems, uh, you know, uh, testify to that theme a little bit. You know, to me, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice is probably the most important story that poets tell themselves. And it's a story of poetic failure. Uh, and, uh, you know, poets, uh, I think, have taken pride in their various failures over the last few hundred years. They, they, they regard it as badges of honor, right, to, to, to be perfect failures, uh, martyrs to their cause. But um, uh, in this occasion, I, I, would like, I would like poets to succeed. I'd kind of like Orpheus at some point in the cycles of this legend to actually step into the sunlight and drag the bride mm. with him into uh, life again without having, you know, looked back in regret or looked back in, in um, uh, dismay, you know, made sure that, uh, you know, he, he brings his lover back to life uh, with the power of poetry. And I hope that this, you know, poem kind of offers, um, you know, some kind of conceptual alternative to that storytelling, that it, that it constitutes an exception, an anomaly that uh, where, where Orpheus in fact succeeds, you know, Manages to go go to hell so and that, back. That would be the, the the desiccated deradiodorans flying through the wilds of space and discovered by an alien civilization. Well, again, you know, uh, lots of people will ask me, you know, like, can an alien, you know, civilization really decipher this? Would it really address, you know, uh, you know, the intelligent uh, raccoons of the future? I don't know, but. The, uh, you know, I, I say probably not in the manner in which you imagine, you know, really what I've done is I've spray painted uh, some graffiti on an obelisk in the desert uh, <laughs> in the hope that, uh, you know, the obelisk will testify to our intelligence itself, right? You know, that I, I don't know if the aliens uh, who pick up the Voyager probe will uh, listen, you know, fondly to Bach on the golden record and understand it, but uh, they might learn a lot, right, from the antenna array, <laughs> right, uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> of, 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 right from the technology aboard the spacecraft itself. Um, the, the, the purpose of the exercise, I think, is, is conceptual. It's intended to, you know, scare my friends and rivals. Uh, it's intended to, you know, provide a limit case for poetry in the 21st century. I'm trying to respond to, you know, the technological circumstances of this moment in history. At a time when, you know, there's a great deal of anxiety about our future as a species, you know, dealing with uh, emergencies around uh, climate, if not technological advancement. Uh, certainly there are lots of opportunities for prosperity in the future, which, you know, I'm optimistic about. I would say that it seems to me that we're very likely to enjoy a very prosperous future, but it's, you know, the future is also fraught with lots of peril and we can't be complacent about it. Um, and this, this century is a little more unusual than the last century. Uh, there's right now at this point, um, uh, hundred years ago, there would be, you know, talk of the 21st century and what life will be like in the 21st century at this point, you know, you know, can analogously in the 21st century, mm. we don't have talk like what will life be like in the 22nd century, right? There's no kind of Buck Rogers imagining of the future with, you know, an optimistic outlook and utopian set of ideals, right? There's a great deal of anxiety and, and concern, right? We, you know, the horizons for our investment and, and uh, uh, future seem to have gotten, you know, foreshortened, right? You know, you know, just to the next 30 or 40 years, or if not next decade or two. And it's, 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 you know, there's a, the horizons have gotten shorter. There's a great deal of, you know, morbid concern about our mortality. And this work, I hope answers that somehow, like responds to it, you know, with, with, you know, substantive thematic sets of concerns. And I hope is optimistic, like it suggests the degree to which poetry might contribute something 
to the deep time of our legacy right? that poetry can address a future that's very far off you know in, in uh, you know well well beyond um, you know the, the foreseeable parameters of our existence as a civilization you know I'd, I'd like to think that poetry has a has a pretty important role to play you know in our understanding of the cosmos and probably testifying to our to our existence you know it's probably a big thing yeah a couple of final questions do you, on that theme do you think in the sort of final chapters of the cosmos let, let's suppose that we've figured out all of physics would there still be poetry would there still be constraints based poetry as well well um we don't really know what the cosmos is about, right? I mean, it seems to be a, a you know a big waste of time, right? On the face of it, <laughs> like, I mean, there's a lot of time, and uh, you know, for much of it, um, uh, you know, it's not that interesting. Uh, like, you know, for you know, from the perspective of sentient creatures, it's actually kind of a concentration camp, right? It's a ter- terrible prison, uh, mostly ho- inhospitable to life. Uh, but I suspect um, that given timescales and, the, and our, the presence of intelligence, at least on one planet in one small corner of it all, that uh, life is important, uh, perhaps because it might actually play a role in the ultimate evolution of the cosmos, that, you know, uh, that mm. uh, intelligence may have some, you know, significant role to play in, um, in rescuing the cosmos, perhaps from its... Uh, thermodynamic outcome, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, life has some role to play in exploring, you know, cor- you know corners of the universe that um, perhaps give, you know, exit ways to, you know, other futures, other, other you know, cosmic opportunities uh, that would otherwise be undiscovered if uh, consciousness did not exist. So I don't, I don't know what, you know, like what, um, what uh, role poetry might play in, you know, the very deep time of uh, what a, a cosmos that consists of nothing but black holes, right? You know, orbiting each other and decaying into nothing. I mean, I, you know, that, that seems to me like a rather unpleasant outcome for everybody, right? Like it's not, it's not a, not a, not a great way to go out. Um, and, and yet uh, we, we just don't know what role life has to play in all of it. Uh, it, it, to me seems a kind of wild card in the whole mm. uh, game, right? Uh, you know, we, we, we tamper with everything. And uh, it could be that uh, we don't just tamper with, you know, the forces of nature on a single planet. You know, we might tamper with the forces of nature, you know, around stars or, you know, in space time itself. Who knows? Like, you know, we might might find ourselves smart enough to uh, begin to uh, influence, I don't know, the evolution of the of the cosmos itself. Perhaps perhaps we that that's what life is for. Um, But I don't know. And to, to, to me, the the important thing is. Is to ensure that poetry, where you know, has a role to play in, you know, at each moment of you know human cognition that we that we that, that poetry's there. Um, mm. I didn't want the first messages, you know, to be enciphered into you know bacteria. The earliest messages, do you want them to be ads for Microsoft, right? Do you want them to be uh, uh, barcodes, right? You know, for patent, uh, you know, infringement. I don't know <laughs> what 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 do you want those messages to be, right? That might be preserved for all time. I, I think I would like I'd like them to be at least demotic, that there would be the opportunity for people to preserve, you know, photos of their grandmother or, um, you know, uh, messages to their loved ones, you know, that, 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 that there's some, that there is some poetry in all of that, right? The, the effort to uh, provide memorials and testament, you know, to, to our existence. And, you know, th- this, this work, as I said, it just constitutes a limit case of, of that activity, an attempt to 
to show what poetry could do um, uh, when, it, when it confronts you know, the technological affordances of our moment in time of the 21st century. Yeah. So yeah, I think life might guide the development of the universe and poetry might guide the development of, of life. Uh, my last question is, what, what's next? Let's uh, let's say that, and I really hope this happens, that uh, you can announce next year mm. the Xenotext. It's happened. Um, what is the next boundary that you'll push on? Uh, well, you know, I, I think I probably have to take a break from doing impossible projects. <laughs> I have to do something that's a little uh, a little more um, easily uh, com- completable. Um, there's lots of other uh, projects uh, that I have promised I would do. Uh, lots of unbuilt Chevys sitting on you know concrete blocks in my backyard. I think that I would probably have to <laughs> fix up and, and make roadworthy. Um, I would love to make a, a long, musically inflected sound poem uh, that would be epic in scale. You know, a wonderful you know kind of testament to the history of performance in poetry. Uh, you know, just a like a, a beautiful lengthy score that would be uh, primarily nonsensical, but uh, euphonically beautiful and wonderful to listen to. Uh, that would be a, a great ambition for me afterwards it was because it would be pleasant and fun to do it. Um, I have a, a, a long ongoing uh, narrative suite of poetry that uh, are responsive to um, the history of uh, uh, gemology, uh, reverting again to my interest in crystallography. I have um, uh, you know, a lot of you know, projects that are likewise informed by those sets of obsessions around uh, crystals and mineralogy. Um, I probably am overdue to uh, publish a uh, collection of essays or manifestos or, uh, you know, statements of poetic, something of that sort. Um, I don't know. There's always lots to do, and I am not wanting for ideas, uh, but I, I think I probably have to avoid um, uh, attempting to upscale my ambition my publication record is got, is is on some sort of bizarre logarithmic curve. It took me four <laughs> years to write my first book, and then seven years to write my second book. It took uh, um, uh, fifteen years to write my third book, and if this fourth book uh, finally does come to fruition, it will have been twenty three years. It's not it's not a great path, right, to completion of of uh, work. I I I wouldn't recommend it, you know, to sustain a career. I, I would like to be the kind of poet who publishes a book every year and a half. <laughs> that would be, that would be better for the pocketbook and, um, uh, easier, easier to accomplish. But, um, I, I don't know. I'm hope, I'm hoping that, that, uh, that my contribution to literature up till this point will be meaningful enough that people will still to continue to be engaged with what I attempt to do, uh, for the remainder of my career. And, um, uh, you know, the, the biggest opponent right now is capital H history. We're, tr- you know, trying to ensconce, you know, the place, find a foothold, uh, within the pantheon of great poets from the past, and uh, ensure that you know you make you make a contribution that's worthy of uh, being remembered a hundred years from now. So, um, I'd like to think that I'm on route to being able to do that. And I hope you get to build your Chevys though as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, I have just a, 
a million other questions I could ask as ever. Uh, this no, AI looming over so, You know, you're going to end up editing this into uh, something <laughs> that fits the box. I'm such a lazy editor that I I, I really don't uh, cut out much. Uh, and also because I, I mean, I think you've you, you've said so many things that are all, <laughs> that are all worth listening to. But yeah, maybe a final question. Um, I have been playing around as uh, one is obliged to do before almost any activity with um, large language models. And just seeing, you know, I'm sure you've tried as well to see if you could produce a univocalic lipogram, for example, with uh, ChatGBT. And um, sort of um, reassuringly, it's very bad at this. <laughs> so this is maybe the new Turing test. Uh, can can your LLM produce a univocal lipogram? Um, I'll just read you one for fun. Let me see. Oh, sure. It's, yeah, it's I, sort of, I would be curious to know how chat GPT four, um, you know, tackles a task like that. Yeah. So I tried with both chat GPT three and four, and I didn't see much of advance between the two. And I have to say, um, Google's bard was a complete failure at this. Um, but this is, um, this is one where I asked, uh, so my prompt was write a poem referencing the avant-garde discussing the glyph Ah, using the univocal, the univocal libogrammatic constraint, such that A is also the only vowel. Um, and it doesn't start very well because it starts an avant-garde art. So it's already got an E in uh, the guard mm-hmm. uh, there. The casts a dark path, stands apart as a stark avant-garde craft. Okay, so it's got that. But I did then ask it, um, I mean, I kept on prompting it, but it just was incapable of producing something lacking other vowels but it nonetheless had some pretty good lines uh yeah, I mean, the dark the, the, mark the first, yeah all, all of the all of that statement you you said sounds familiar to me um yeah let me suggest to you that chat gpt is not going to surprise me i actually found all these sentences that like people show me their variations like, oh yeah i saw those sentences i i you know i crafted things like that and then abandoned them right I, it, it's not going to say something i don't think i've already seen um yes but yeah uh, yeah I, uh, I, I use these. I also tools. wonder if it's. Yeah, I've certainly used a, a ChatGPT and you know other variations of it to write poetry. Uh, certainly lately, um, there's been opportunities for me to uh, exploit the tools. Um, there's lots of poets who are very um, uh, suspicious of the merits of computer-generated writing, and again, it's it's because they're assessing uh, uh, a game they don't understand according to the rules of the game they typically play. And certainly uh, delegating, uh, you know, some of your authority for writing to uh, a machine is an aleatoric chance-based method of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, fundamentally, it's a probabilistic form of expression. And as a consequence, you're doing it in order to see what kind of uncanny, spooky, you know, oracular result you might get, right? You're, you're, there's a prophetic quality to the outcomes if you're lucky. And it's a game of chance. So, you know, fine. Like I would, I would say if you, if you succeed at that, it validates um, uh, your luckiness as a poet. And uh, there's lots of peers who are suspicious of it. They dismiss it. And they claim, of course, that these machines don't know the first thing about poetry. And they write, they'll they'll never be able to write a poem that is equivalent to the merits of a Shakespeare or a Milton or something of that sort. And I look and say, well, um, sure. But uh, even though these machines know nothing about how to write poetry, they still write poetry better than human beings who know nothing about poetry. And to me, if I had my choice, if I would rather, you know, if I want to read Doggerel by poets, I think I'm going to want to re- read the Doggerel by the machines first, 
more than the dog rolled by the humans because uh, the humans are, are even worse at it. So in this respect, the, the machines do write bad poetry better than bad poets. Like, I think that's, that's an important <laughs> thing to, to note. Okay. <laughs> yeah. like they, that, that, that's already, it strikes me as a little benchmark that gets passed, right? That they're, they're beating the bad poets at writing bad poetry. They're a little better than that. Um, and I have to remind poets that, um, you know, unlike us, unlike the poets, right? The machines aren't getting stupider. Okay. <laughs> the machines yeah. are only getting smarter. And, uh, you know, whatever you think that curve might, might be that where they cross, you know, your, goalpost of Shakespeare or Milton, it's probably not as far in the future as you think. And it's certainly going to happen uh, because these machines aren't, are not getting dumber. Uh, they're only getting smarter and they're getting smarter faster than us. So I'm not, I'm not too concerned about that because the, the machines actually have uh, uh, great uh, tool sets that actually you can enhance the capacity of human beings to express themselves and uh, surprise mm. themselves. But I, I think there is some concern that, you know, we're going to be you know, uh, competing with a, a machinic culture for the attention of people, you know, and it's probably already true. Most traffic mm -hmm. on the internet is between machines. Um, mm -hmm. uh, certainly more than 50% of traffic is now between machines without human intervention. And that would seem to me that you're already participating in an ostensible machinic culture uh, online. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it, we just don't, we just don't know it yet, right? Like we, have, we haven't, we haven't seen the full fruits of that competition come to fruition. Uh, but it, but it, obviously it, it seems to be, you know, the case that potentially lawyers will be replaced, you know, artists and illustrators and, you know, conventional uh, forms of artistic practice that we might do for money might, might be replaced. Uh, machines will be, you know, after at it, faster at it, uh, more entertaining at it. And of course, you know, mm. whatever we find wanting in, in it right now, uh, it, it doesn't seem to me that those, those shortcomings are going to persist for very long. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously really interested in these innovations. I've certainly used uh, the tools uh, because I'm an experimental poet. I go where the experiments are. Um, there's lots of uh, wonderful younger poets um, uh, who have uh, uh, done amazing things with this, with these kinds of technologies. And I look at them with much optimism. Like I just say, keep mm. good work. I am concerned though that poets, you know, poets are, are at heart very ludic and conservative. I would have liked, you know, my, my peers to be more imaginative about their relationship to the 21st century and its, and its technologies and its, I don't know, its affordances, you know, that there's, there's po poets for whatever reason right now seem to me to be collectively uh, suspicious of the future, uh, right. less optimistic about the future than say poets, even a hundred years ago, you know, at this point, a hundred years ago, there were five or six globally renowned avant-garde movements, you know, imaginative uh, uh, utopian yeah. visions of poetry, uh, working, you know, together, you know, in the global culture. And right now, uh, there's at best only one or two, maybe two. And um, that by comparison seems to me a paucity of, of interest, you know, kind yeah. of, of, you know, in the future. I, like I would, I would prefer that there were more kind of alternatives, yeah. right, in the avant-garde, uh, in literature, that, 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 you, that you had a wider variety of choices to, to explore. I think for many, poetry is become a kind of refuge from modernity instead of trying to legislate for it and 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 and, and alter the uh, conception of the uh, yeah, possibilities. I, I, of I like this idea that poetry is a refuge uh, from modernity. Uh, I mean, it, 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 of course, it was one of the engines of modernity, you know, for a little while. Yeah. Um, 
uh, I like the fact that in the early 20th century, uh, art forms, artistic movements, uh, had their poetic contingent, uh, that poets would always be in collaboration with uh, visual artists, um, that if you referred to surrealism, you're referring, of course, not just to a movement in fine art and painting, uh, but also to a movement uh, in poetry, and that there was collaboration and um, conversation uh, amongst artists uh, across different pedigrees. Um, but after the 1950s, uh, somehow uh, uh, all of these art schools of the arts uh, become detached uh, from their literary uh, bastions and poets go their own way. Uh, there's probably no, I mean, there's very few, I shouldn't say there's no, but there's very, there's fewer occasions in, you know, after the 1950s where there's a great deal of, of conversation between school, uh, one school of visual art and this in an analogous school in poetry that they're, that they're collaborating with each other. They become more detached from each other now. And it made possible, you know, claims made by the likes of Brian Geisen, who notes that, you know, uh, uh, poetry is 50 years behind painting. Um, a claim that, that feels true. Uh, certainly in, you know, creative writing, uh, departments in North America, many programs teach, uh, poetry, teach you how to write poetry as though the internet was never invented because <laughs> though, right. you know, as though <laughs> computer programming never happened. Like, like you're not, you're not given much, um, access to the, the tools that, you know, you might require to know, like the, you know, how to use now in the 21st century, you know, there's not a great deal of effort to, to make it possible for you to become a 21st century poet, uh, in those programs, the, the, and I think that will change, you know, there, there will be, there will be a, a need for it to change, but right now it's, it's still possible yeah. for people to learn how to be poets without knowing the first thing about how to program a computer, for example, or, or, you know, uh, respond to the affordances of something like the internet. It's just very strange. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see certainly very good near-term possibilities that this the, the self-expression component um, for, say, lyric poetry could be provided by prompts and, and, and come from people, but the self-conscious part could be applied by machines and, 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 and doing the ordering, finding the best way of fitting that sentiment into uh, the appropriate structure. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I, I think some of the, the quality of the results will depend strongly on the quality of the, the prompt. I gave a well, pretty poor prompt earlier where I, where I asked for a, a poignant poem about Christian Book and the entrepreneur James Robinson having a video chat about constraints-based literature. And it, it wasn't very promising. It, it started, in a digital world, a meeting is set, a poet and an entrepreneur in pixels they met. Christian book of linguistic <laughs> craft, so deft. James Robinson in realms of business adept, which uh, <laughs> and it goes on. Pretty, it's pretty lengthy, um, but yeah. But uh, you're right. It, it doesn't sound very promising, and it of course it sounds like doggerel. Um, uh, but here's the thing: it's it's not irretrievable. You probably could uh, use that as a as I don't know. It's a car wreck, and and your job is now to you know, to be a really good auto mechanic yeah. and fix it, right? Like you could go in and intervene, you know, uh, actually apply some good principles of uh, prosody and revise it. Like, like it, it's always easier to revise something than it is to actually generate it, you know, out of whole cloth. And it could be that, uh, you know, the machine at this point would give you uh, something to work with, right? It, it hands you a, a lump of clay, right? That's, you know, you know, a terrible facsimile of a horse and your job is to sculpt it into something, you know, more appropriate to, uh, you know, the, the genius of a horse. I don't know. Like, the the the, the 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 tools uh 
have have their capabilities. There's lots of poets who can exploit them for for uh, merit. I think they, they, they are very talented. Um, obviously, you know, if 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 you can, if a prompt will will grant you a, a really good outcome, then uh, understanding the poetics of crafting a good prompt uh, that produces mm. an anomalous result uh, with reliability constitutes a, a, a new skill set, perhaps even something you might want to teach somebody else how to do. But, uh, you know, we haven't figured out how to break the tools properly yet. I mean, people are simply, you know, goofing around with them and playing with them and experimenting with them. What I do like about the tools is that they make um, access to the art world a little more demotic. Uh, the cost of failure is mm -hmm. lower. Uh, it's therefore easier to take risk and try things out experimentally. Uh, probably, you know, makes access to these uh, forms of expression more uh, amenable to a wider variety of people. And all of that seems to me, at least on the face of it, uh, a good thing. Like, I mean, I don't know what the long term, you know, <laughs> it might be, it might be a bad thing. But, <laughs> but I, I don't know, uh, you know, the, 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 the demotic forms of art, like, uh, you know, becoming a YouTube video uh, entrepreneur, you know, it's impossible to have done that. And now ordinary people can, you know, ha have audiences in the millions. And to me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it does mean that very talent, new talent, new kinds of talent are going to be found. And sure, certainly with the advent of uh, generative algorithms, um, computer assisted uh, writing uh, with all of these uh, large language models, with the advent of the blockchain, even on cryptocurrencies, um, lots of otherwise excluded members of artistic activity now find opportunities to express themselves. Uh, you know, certainly marginal communities, uh, there's now more women, more people from the global South participating in the art world than ever before. And to me, that, that's gotta be a net good for, for, for the time being. It seems to me that that's a good thing that you involve more people in the art forms. Um, I mean, it means probably there'll be a lot more junk being made but it also means that a lot more risk will occur that people will be will, will try things out there will be there'll be more of a more diversity of voices i suppose and i i think that's okay like i, I look at that i look upon the demotic nature of, of these advances with with some approval you know even if my peers you know are worried about it or suspicious about it i think that's the the feature that i admire most about it it just grants people greater access to something from which they might have been felt otherwise excluded I think that's a, a lovely optimistic point to to end on that we may see a, sure. a flourishing of experimentation literature sure. before the machines I the take over. That. I, I would like the future to you know flourish with more experimentation. You know, that with, with people finding uh, great outlets for their imagination and you know uh, benefiting from it. Uh, you know that they that there's opportunities, greater opportunities even now, for people's talent to flourish. Um, I, I think it's harder to blame others for your lack of success now with these kinds of tools at your disposal becomes easier to um, plot how you might be able to uh, manage your, the success of your own career as an artist and figure out how to do something that will please others and yourself. Right? I, th I think it's, I think it's it, the future looks bright, you know, to me for the most part. Well, Christian, look, I won't keep you any longer from turning your Chevys, probably into something that's not a Chevy. <laughs> but, uh, well, James, you've been good company. I appreciate your uh, uh, indulgences and allowing me to be very verbose and prolix uh, in my answers. Thank you. Um, and I would like, of course, to extend my gratitude to your listeners uh, for uh, spending time with me. Uh, thank you, uh, one and all. Thank you, James, for, uh, for inviting me onto your show. Cheers. Congratulations. You made it to the end of the episode. 
this could just be because there was some kind of breakdown and uh, an electronic or physiological failure meant that you simply couldn't cut short the sound of my droning voice. But perhaps you just really liked this episode. And if that's the case, please do leave a five-star review in your favoured podcast directory. Leave five-star reviews, in fact, in all the podcast directories, even the ones you hate. Remember, the first rule of multiverses is please do talk about multiverses on social media and in all public forums and tell your friends and so forth. Yeah, I guess I could edit that down a bit.